I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. doing a reading from Matthew 20 lines 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again, about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. 
And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am so generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We're going to talk about the election today. I mean, how could we not? We just ended one of the most divisive election seasons in the history of our country. And we're a church living in the middle of that reality right now. So yeah, we're going to talk about the election. But in order to do that, I think we first have to look at the Bible. So today's scripture is the parable of the field workers. And, and you can find it in Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 16. But the parable goes something like this. Early in the morning one day, the owner of a vineyard goes to the marketplace to hire some workers. These workers are a lot like the day laborers you might find right now sitting outside of Lowe's on, on Route 1. They negotiate a wage and they agree on one denarius for a full day's work. And the workers then go and head out to the field to pick grapes. Of course, this is hard work and, and the owner needs more workers. So he returns to the marketplace in, in the sixth hour and again in the ninth hour uh, to get some more workers. Finally, in the 11th hour, he returns to the marketplace and, and finds a group of men still standing there. And so he asks them, why are you all standing here so lazily? To which they reply, well, no one's hired us. So, so the owner tells them to, to go to his vineyard. He doesn't even discuss a wage with them. He just tells them to go and they just go. At the end of the day, the owner pays everyone, starting with the last to arrive. Every worker receives one denarius, whether they arrived at the 11th hour or the 9th hour or the 6th hour or were the very first to arrive. And so those early morning workers, the ones who say of themselves that they endured the burden of the day and the scorching heat, well, they get a little grumpy. They grumble. They complain, they whinge, they whine, and eventually the, the owner has to tell them basically to stop giving him the evil eye because he paid everyone the exact same wage. He says to them, it's my prerogative to pay everyone however I want. It's my vineyard. And that, that's the parable. 
you know, I think it's really easy to put ourselves into the shoes of those early morning workers as, as they watch the 11th hour workers go up and, and receive one denarius uh, for their pay. Maybe we'd get a little bit excited thinking that, well, they got paid that. We, we might be getting paid more than we thought we were getting. After all, you know, we worked longer and harder than those 11th hour workers. And then we watch the 9th hour workers go up and, and receive a denarius and we get a little confused. I mean, they worked harder than the 11th hour workers. Don't they deserve to be paid more? And then we watch the 6th hour workers go up and, and receive a denarius and we get really confused. And then we go and we receive the exact same payment. And we think this isn't fair. But is this parable about fairness? And what does any of this have to do with the election? Well, if we really want to understand this parable, we have to expand our scope of inquiry here and look at what comes right before this text and, and what comes after this text. And, and to really get the fullness of this text, we need to start in chapter 19 and, and set the scene from there. In chapter 19, Jesus has gone from Galilee into Judea and is preaching to and healing the large crowds that have followed him. It's here that we find the rich young man. Now, we actually meet the rich young man both in Mark and Luke, uh, the Gospels of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. But the exchange in Matthew, it's unique. Each gospel writer, though, starts the story in exactly the same way. The wealthy young man goes up to Jesus and, and says, Rabbi, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus responds, keep the commandments. Uh, to which the rich young man asks, which ones? Well, here, Jesus lists off six commandments, and the ones that he uses here are exactly the same in all three Gospels, except that Matthew adds a seventh. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The, the rich young man, he's quick to reply. He says, I've done all that. What else must I do? You can almost hear the excitement in his voice thinking that he might really be just this close to, to finally getting his reward. And Jesus says to him, if you're looking for perfection, go sell all your possessions, give everything to the poor and come follow me. The rich young man, so excited, only moments before, leaves dejected, grieving, Matthew tells us, because he has many possessions. After this encounter, Jesus tells the disciples that, that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle 
than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples hear that, they're astounded and they're confused and, and they ask, well, who then can be saved? Oh, Peter, Peter thinking he has all the answers. He knows who can be saved. He can be saved. He tells Jesus, look, we've left everything and followed you. What are we going to get? And Jesus tells them that, that they and others will receive a hundredfold and, and they will inherit eternal life. Peter probably thought that sounded like a, a really good return on his investment. And Jesus continues, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And so this is where we find today's parable in the narrative. And Jesus concludes this parable with that same line. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. After the parable, Jesus predicts his death for the third time in Matthew, and in the most specific way that we find in this gospel. He says that the Son of Man will be condemned to death, mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day, he will be raised again. And immediately after he lays this heavy news on, on those gathered, the mother of James and John tells Jesus that she needs a favor. Declare, she says, that these two sons of mine will sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. I think she might be the ultimate stage mother, y'all. I mean, here Jesus has just laid out how he's going to be betrayed and killed. And she's thinking, if I can just get my sons on the throne with this guy, they'll have it made. Hearing her, <laughs> the disciples, well, they get a little grumpy. They grumble, they complain, they whinge, they whine. And Jesus tells them, look, Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Or we could read it like this. The last must be first and the first must be last. So we have a few stories here that are interconnected and, and we can tell that they're interconnected because of that line. The last must be first and, and the first must be last. It's repeated. We have a rich young man who's trying to live a holy life and, and he thinks that he's done enough. We have the disciples and Peter who think that they've done enough. We have some field workers who think that they've done enough. And then we have the mother of James and John, who clearly thinks that her baby boys have definitely done enough. And so we end up having to ask this question then. What does enough even mean? 
All these people, they think that they've done enough and now they deserve their reward. Eternal life, sitting on the throne, living the good life. But what is this enough? If we're just reading along, Jesus's passion prediction might feel a little bit clunky sitting between the end of the parable and the introduction of the mother of James and John. But it's no coincidence that, that Jesus's passion prediction is inserted here into this narrative. In every story, the characters think that they've done enough. But it's here that Jesus lays out what enough actually is. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was condemned, mocked, flogged, and crucified, not because of his crimes, but as a ransom for our crimes. That's that's what enough looks like. And so when we start to read these stories through the lens of that enough, everyone else's enough starts to pale in comparison. The rich young man followed the commandments, but, but just following God's law is not enough. The disciples gave up everything they had to follow Jesus. But, but what are things in comparison to a life? It's just not enough. The first workers in the field put in a hard day's work in the hot sun, but our works, they're, they're just not enough. And James and John, they were friendly enough with Jesus that, that their mother thought that she could go up and ask this favor. But just knowing Jesus well, it's not enough. The only enough is the broken body of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. And, and none of us, not a single one of us will ever get close enough to that enough. So we could stop there. We could stop with the reality that, that this broken world has no chance of ever doing enough to redeem itself from our fall into sin. We are so far from that perfect sacrifice that we just can't make a way for ourselves out of this dumpster fire. We could stop there. But God, God walks through the market and sees us idle, seemingly lazy, out of work, without a denarius or a dollar to our name. And God says, hey, why don't you come work for me in my vineyard? We have nothing to offer God. This, this isn't a transaction among equals. Without this offer, we would continue to be hungry, thirsty, unhoused, so we go to God's vineyard. We work hard 
others around us seem to maybe not work nearly as hard. And God, God keeps going out to the marketplace and bringing back people, bringing back more people who have worked fewer hours than we have. And at the end of the day, we all line up and everyone is paid exactly the same. And we think to ourselves, this isn't fair. Where, where is this God of justice that, that we've heard so much about? But the fact of the matter is, we're not the first ones to the vineyard. And so while we're getting a little grumpy, while we grumble, while we complain, while we whinge, while we whine, we're only looking at the people who just got paid ahead of us. We're not looking at all the folks being paid after us. We're looking for justice. But as St. Thomas Aquinas says, God is doing something more than justice here. And so here is where we talk about the election. In the Old Testament, God elected the Hebrew people. God chose them to be a blessing to the world, to all of God's creation. But for one reason after another, they just couldn't fulfill their calling. Their human brokenness made them struggle with holiness and made them fail at wholeness. And so God elected Jesus Christ. And in Christ, God's calling was fulfilled, not just for the Hebrew people, but for all people everywhere, no matter what. God elected Christ and in Christ created for each of us a path through which we can find wholeness. God loves this fallen world. God loves so much that God was willing in spirit and in flesh to, as our creed says, descend into hell for us. We don't just embroider John 3.16 onto pretty pillows or, or write it on our anti-glare strips before sports matches. We actually believe for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God and God alone initiates every action in our redemption. And you don't, you don't have to take my word for it. It's in the Bible. It's in this parable. God elects us to, to share it in God's kingdom. This isn't a transaction among equals. Without this offer, we would continue to hunger, to thirst. Our shabby, half-hearted works with which we respond to this election, they're not why God calls us. We, we can never 
do enough. We can never be enough. We can never respond enough. We can never glorify God enough to ever deserve this election. And yet, God still calls us. Despite our poverty of spirit, our our poverty of response, our poverty of faith, God still calls us. And so the good news of this parable is God's constant ongoing, ever-present, reaching out to humanity, even when we don't deserve it, particularly when we don't deserve it. Our election into God's kingdom isn't based on justice. It's based on something so much more than justice grace, mercy. Through Jesus Christ, by the grace of God and in God's mercy, God has prepared for you, for me, for all of us, a a way to fulfill God's calling to be a blessing to all of God's creation. So, What does this parable tell us about the kingdom of heaven? Well, it turns our earthly elections on their head. We don't elect God. God elects us. And God elects us not to serve God's own interests, not to protect God's own investments, not to advance God's own priorities, but to be a blessing for all of God's creation. In Matthew's account of the rich young man, Jesus adds the commandment, you shall love your neighbor, not because our neighbor deserves our love, but because God so loves us and created in each of us the image of God. And so even as we love God for God's grace and and God's mercy, we are called to love the image of God in our neighbors. In God's kingdom, the elect fulfill a call to be a blessing to all of God's creation through love and in love, and with love. In light of our election by God, we have to see our earthly elections differently. It's not that they don't matter at all. In fact, it is because of our election by God that our earthly elections matter all the more. What would an earthly election look like if our elect sought to fulfill that blessing to answer that call? What if instead of kingmakers, our political system endeavored to be kingdom 
makers, a people living out the kingdom of God right now, right here. What if in our earthly elections, we encountered the presence of the triune God that transforms, that redeems, that restores this created fallen world? God's grace actually does something to us. It empowers us. It transforms us so that these questions no longer have to be hypothetical, but can become our reality. As Christians, we are called not to vote in our own interests, but in a way that blesses all of God's creation, that honors God's image, and that follows the path of, of love, grace, and mercy that that God has prepared for us. Justice is important. But as the image bearers of God, we are elected to do so much more than just justice. Let's live into our election and let's require the same of those we elect in this earthly kingdom. For... God so loves this fallen world. And that's the good news of this parable. Thanks be to God. There is peace at the table of the Lord.